This is Coda Radio, episode 141, for February 16th, 2015. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coder Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. This episode is brought to you by our two fine sponsors, DigitalOcean and Linux Academy. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors this year's show goes on. My name is Chris, and we have something special for you today. Join me, Mr. Dominic, will be coming on later in more of a flashback form. We wanted to do a retro look back for Coder Radio. We have some special stuff going on this week. And Mr. Dominic is out. So we're going to take this opportunity to look back. A lot of Zumerian discussions are going to be in here. Some other things that are topics we actually wanted to try to address in our best of episode but didn't have room and felt like needed to be revisited. Uh, and one thing, one topic that seems to be continually, continually revisited is my decision to learn Ruby. And uh, I, I have to be a little honest with you. Uh, as we started here, I'm, I'm with the chat room. And um, they asked, you know, where am I at in the training? I'm, I'm going to be straight with you guys. I'm kind of at the same spot I've ended up every single time I decide to do this. I kind of get paralyzed by indecision. Uh, I continue to get great feedback, like this one that came in from Jan1024188, rolls right off the tongue, from the Coda Radio subreddit. He says, why Chris should learn Python instead of Ruby? And I got to be honest, every time somebody makes a really compelling Python argument, it resonates with me. Um, I'm not blind to the fact that Python is, uh, is a great option for somebody who's primarily on the Linux platform like myself. Um, and that there's some of them, some really amazing projects that are in Python, um, and some really big, so some some really ambitious things like OpenShot, uh, written in Python. And so it obviously could it could handle the whole range of anything I'd ever want to do. Uh, so he writes, sometimes you have to make a compromise and pick a better tool for the job. Uh, and you know I'm a practical person. I mean we take a pragmatic look here on this show. And he says I used to do Rails development, so I really wanted to write some video and automation in Ruby, but it turned out the libraries were just bad or unavailable, so I turned to Python. It's much better luck there, as Python is more of a general-purpose language. Ruby is mostly used by rail hipsters. The main library I used is called MoviePy. It might be useful for Chris as well. Have fun. And by the way, I think Python is a pragmatic language and a better pick if you're in more than one person team. Uh, and, of course, this then generates a whole thread of discussions around picking the best tool for the job. And one of the reasons I went Ruby here was because we use some Ruby already in-house. Uh, and, and Rob Loach jumps in, longtime uh, listener of the show, Rob Loach, on the uh, Rails by Hipsters comment. Rails, Ruby is mostly used by Rails with uh, using, hipsters using Rails. Uh, Rob says, I agree. My experience with Ruby has been the following. Dependency hell and version conflicts between independent libraries, slow processing, and fanboys making religious choices of Mac OS X and Ruby. I kind of feel like that's beginning to change, though, Rob. I think Linux is starting to become a serious uh, first-class citizen there. Uh, he says, I do have a few projects that use Ruby, but I've slowly transitioned to faster, more effective solutions that fit the job better. Oh, Okay. Uh, whatever gets the job done has great community and makes it easy to share. Python, Node, Go, PHP, I've had great experiences with all communities. As long as it works for you and you find it easy to contribute and get involved in the community, you'll thrive. <clears throat> Those are all, you can see though, like this is all, this is surprisingly hard for me. And I know I get all wrapped up in this. It's not like I'm making a big life decision. But my time is extremely valuable to me. And I don't know if I will spend a lot of time in the next little while ever learning a different one. So I do want to make sure I make the right time investment when I when I make my choice. Um, and it's a difficult thing. Uh, and this is something that uh, I don't think I'm going to solve in the next week or so. So hopefully you'll bear with me. But I think I'm, I'm narrowing in on a choice. And 
part of me, honestly, is going to be motivated motivated by what solutions I have available to me. Um, and, and I think that's kind of kind of the key piece. And our first solution, of course, and the one, one of the reasons that I know I can eventually do this is Linux Academy. That's our first sponsor of the Coder Radio program, Linux Academy. Head over to linuxacademy.com slash coders. That'll get you our special Coder Radio discount. Linux Academy is a great resource. It's built by people that are super passionate about Linux, about the technologies around Linux, like Python, like Ruby, um, but also the entire stack that you end up having to deploy as a person that works in production, uh, the AWS web environment, of course, uh, OpenStack, uh, anything in the DevOps realm. If you find yourself transitioning into that, maybe you didn't even realize you were there, and one day you woke up and said, holy crap, I'm one of those DevOps people. It doesn't matter. Linux Academy has got your back. And if you go to linuxacademy.com slash coders and you get our discount, then you'll get value on your subscription. And that the great the great thing is, is that already is so much great content in there with self-paced courses, step-by-step video courses, downloadable comprehensive study guides you can bring offline. You can choose from seven plus Linux distributions. They'll automatically adjust the courseware to match that distribution, right? So they're going to match the distribution. And not only does the courseware match the distribution, but the virtual machines that they spin up in the labs for you also they also match. It's so cool. It's so slick. It's because these guys get it. This is what they do. This is their focus. The reason why you listen to Jupiter Broadcasting content is because we go deeper than a lot of other podcasts go because we live this stuff. This is this is us. Same with Linux Academy. And that's why I think they're a great fit for the Jupiter Broadcasting audience. Go over there and try out some of their Docker stuff. Or if you've been thinking about Ruby like I have, they've got new courseware on Ruby on Linux right there. You can go check out all of it over at linuxacademy.com slash coders. Go try them. You can do the learning plan, too. If you're really, if you know, I was talking about uh, time is exceedingly valuable. One of the things I really like about Linux Academy is they get that, and they do not ever undervalue your time. And, in fact, they give you tools specifically to allow you to take advantage of limited time or, or to let you go full pedal to the metal when you have enough time. Uh, and so for me, I take advantage of the learning plans. As soon as they rolled those things out, it's, it's really useful. You go in there, you say how much time you have available on each day of the week. It could be none, or it could be an hour or two for Monday, an hour or two Tuesday, 30 minutes Wednesday, right? You kind of line out the system. And then the system will populate those days with content that fits your time availability. It'll generate reminders for you because they assume you're probably pretty busy and they can remind you about quizzes to get studying done. And when you jump in, you're going to get a complete snapshot of right where you're at on any of the courseware. They have Android development, PHP development, Python. I mean, you know, that's, I mean, this, this is where I'm going, right? Whether I go Ruby or Python, this is where I'm going. And I think you can too for a lot of things. LinuxAcademy.com slash coders. Go get our special discount. And a big thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. All right, chat room. <clears throat> Brace yourselves because we are about to go in the Coder Radio retro machine and take a look back at some of our more popular topics. We should probably mention next Monday doing a double Coder Radio, two back-to-back Coder Radio. So that'll be 97 and 98 back-to-back. And Mr. Dominic, uh, why are we doing that? Well, I'm uh, getting married in two weeks. Get the hell out of here. What? It's true. It's actually happening. Congratulations. You're going to finally turning you into an honest man, huh? Wow. I know, I know. I, I, you know, I thought it would never happen for me. <laughs> well, we'll see. I, I say the jury's still out. All right, Mike. So uh, I, you know, we've we kind of almost feel like we've been accidentally building to this topic over like the last three weeks. So we talked uh, maybe even the last four weeks because first we talked about material and what Google's trying to do with design and how materials sort of. Um, you know their attempt to kind of make Android a, have a unified look that works in multiple different uh, form factors. Then we talked about building interfaces and the tools that are available for that and how much they suck. And then you had a blog post, uh, or at least I don't know if you wrote it, but uh, oh yeah, it was on your blog over at dominicm.com. You wrote up a review of the uh, 
Zamarian, is it the is it the entire suite, or are you just looking at the forms aspect in this review? So this review is actually just looking at uh, vanilla Zamarin. So this gets a little weird. Uh, oh, lay it on me. Zamarin uh, has two very different offerings. One is what in the past was just called Zamarin, which is basically a – this is a gross oversimplification, right? But basically a, a C-sharp wrapper around native iOS and native Android APIs. And that one, you know, we were talking about the user interface tools before. That one actually uses the, uh, you know, the storyboard files out of uh, iOS and uses the same Android layout files. Very much just say, do you know C-sharp? Do you want to do mobile? Let's do it, right? Some limited co-chairing, but not a ton using classic Xamarin. Then there's this new offering called Xamarin Forms, which is totally different. Okay. Um, this review is only of Xamarin, and the reason for that is Xamarin Forms is incredibly new. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, I am doing some work with it, but I mean, you know, just kind of a full disclosure thing. It's so new that when you're working with it, you're talking to the developers working on it, kind mm, of thing. Okay. And they're saying there's things that they haven't finished yet, the stuff like that. Xamarin Forms is certainly not something you're going to want to ship in your enterprise unless it's like a Skunk Works project just yet. Well, I, I'm kind of, in a way, I feel like maybe this is an opportunity. I'm going to, you know, I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it because uh, I think being just full, fully honest with you is I hold uh, multi-level biases towards Zamarian. Right. Uh, and, and I think kind of some of that comes from like real basic where I've seen like, yes, we can create something that's not, the native, not from the native uh, SDK and IDE and we'll build it out into a binary that you can drop on that platform. It'll be just like it made it in Xcode, just like that, only not quite. And then you go to actually use it and it's crap. So I've got like this bias towards these build it in the, you know this completely foreign uh, language. You know, so in this case, maybe and I could be completely misunderstanding, but you write something in C Sharp but the target platform they expect you to, on that platform to use the target language is objective c so you're not cre- it's like a it's like it's almost like you're sneaky you're getting away with something a little bit you're sneaking it past the cops and uh submitting this app that uh, you made with uh with with the outlaw development environment that's i'm i'm kind of exaggerating the bias but yeah, that's what so that's what i conjure up when i think of zamarian i mean i i am right on the hater train with you and you know software written in real basic software written in uh even some of the old Java GUI kits were terrible, right? Yeah. Uh, one might argue that Java FX is also terrible. Oh. But so the road to Xamarin, I mean, we've been doing Xamarin for almost, for actually several months now. Um, and the road to Xamarin was kind of, a, you know, Chris, do you remember dating in high school? Yeah. You know, it started with a little bit of a, you know, a look in a hallway. Yeah. Maybe a quick chat at a locker. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I here. dialed in that uh, the band geeks were definitely the low hanging fruit for a computer. Oh, nerd. oh, oh, oh. <laughs> what? No, I mean, but band wow. girls need love too, man. I'm, it's not a disservice. I'm taking. I'm. 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 I'm uh, I was answering a market need. What? Come on. <laughs> the true capitalist. Um, <laughs> anyway, my point is, this has been something of a long flirtation. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's why you know some of the folks writing in, uh, I won't say complaining, but I will say bitching, that we haven't covered any, any technical tools was because I wasn't sure that I wanted to just dis- discuss Xamarin, because I know sometimes people take everything I discuss as like a super endorsement, and kind of get pissed off when it doesn't work out for them. 
So I kind of played it cool, right? You wanted to kind of. Uh... Well, I wanted to. I wanted to be sure I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Xamarin is a tool that solves a problem. Now, the problem we've been having is we get lots of people who call and say, "Gay uh, fingertip, we want an app. We want it on both platforms. We really don't have the budget, right?" Now, we flirted with various HTML5 solutions. We've done projects. We've shipped successful projects in various HTML5 solutions. But there's just something about the HTML5 solutions that never really satisfied me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the one that you probably heard of the most is PhoneGap, and PhoneGap is not something we recommend. Um, it's just not good, right? When, when you're doing a PhoneGap project, you're shooting for almost okay. Like, that's the top you're going to get. Titanium is better. Um, the folks over at Telerec have something that's pretty interesting. But again, when we tried it out, it was very immature. So I've always, you know, so we have a market problem of people want dual platform apps, right? And I'm using the phrase dual platform rather than cross intentionally. So by dual, do you, do you mean iOS and, and Android? Android? So not like iOS and web or Android and web? No, no, no. That's so a little case, depressing, but okay. Well, to be fair, though, right, your mileage may vary. I mean, fingertip tech has, has a reputation for oh, yeah, solutions. Oh, yeah, true. Right, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. yeah. We, we haven't done, a, I mean, we've done a lot of web work, but a lot of it's of that silence right, contracting yeah. kind of crap where we can't show it. So. Right, no, that makes sense. You're known, you're, you kind of got a reputation for the particular area, so that's... In fact, I, I can't tell you how many times another vendor has ended up doing the web application just because our customer didn't know we did it. Right, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there is a level of self-selectingness to this. Where if you're in a general interactive agency or web development company, you know, Xamarin probably doesn't make a lot of sense for you, right? I mean, if you're a pure HTML5 shop, Xamarin's probably not the way to go. Sure. So anyway, we have this problem where we have, you know, we've also been getting a, a lot more, let's say, line of business type work rather than consumer. Or maybe it's consumer, but it's it's consumer for one specific industry, right? It's like prosumer kind of stuff. Okay. Where you're not so worried about gradients of wood, which thank God Apple killed on iOS seven, and you're you're you know you're you're not really shooting for the TechCrunch reading crowd, right? Right. You're shooting more for, you know, we're in this trade, and all my guys need to carry this and do their job. It needs to be functional, you and know. It needs to be on both platforms. Yeah. And this is my budget. Okay. So double native is incredibly expensive, right? And. There's this, in my mind, this fallacy of, oh, well, the development cost in double native is expensive. It is. But if you're doing two totally native code bases separate, the big cost is going to be that maintenance cost, right? Mm. You have to maintain both platforms totally independently of each other. So we got into a way of we have this certain class of customer. Now, we still offer native development. We still have a lot of customers who take us up on native development. But we have this certain group of customers a certain for for very good business reasons right because of what they're doing need a a dual platform uh somewhat more cost sensitive solution that's where xamarin kind of comes in and and i would imagine too oftentimes this is probably something that 
ties into maybe something that's a specific application that's unique to their industry or something that's semi-common, you know, like a Salesforce yes. backend or something like that. That We're, we're not cloning Instagram and Xamarin. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. stuff that, like, there's some database stuff you're going to have to be able to do, right? That kind of thing. Whatever. A lot of it's, like, interacting with their internal service. Yeah. Um, yeah, their backend, their back, you know, you've got to be able to search something and I pull mean, up the result from their database. It's more, more B2B. I, I feign to use the word enterprise because these companies aren't, you know, enterprise big. But okay, yeah, it's it, it's more business prosumer than consumer. These apps, again, not all of them. We still do consumer apps. It's, this is just a growing segment. Of, yeah, actually, I mean, I could honestly see um, pretty easily, like uh, a lot of this stuff. It's interesting. A lot of the, our equipment now has an API in a way. Uh, so, like yeah. our our mixer and uh, the lights and. Um, a few other things can all be controlled. Like uh, they all have APIs available to them, and we could have like a Jupiter Broadcasting automation app that talks to this stuff. And I would maybe, in theory, be able to have like you know modes you go into last mode, coda radio mode, and it would then send the like a universal remote. <laughs> it probably work just as well too. Right. But that yeah that I mean, and we're not some big enterprise, but that as these technologies kind of just become more common, it, I could see us wanting to do something like that. And from a cost perspective, some of these companies are actually allowing people to bring their own device rather than purchase, let's say, 200 iPads because it's cheaper, right? You don't have to buy the device. The problem is you have to then potentially support Android as well or vice versa, right? If you – because let's be honest, a lot of enterprises, at least of the size we're dealing with, are buying cheap uh, Android devices rather than iPads purely out of a cost uh, cost Mm -hmm. perspective. So um, I'm going to get into some of the more technical stuff on Xamarin in a, in a minute. I just kind of want to go over the case for it. But there is some code sharing. There are some nice little tricks you can do. So the other argument, the other business case we've been able to make for it is, hey, 200-person company, you know, you're not huge, but you have like a four-person IT department, right? Guess what technology your IT department probably already is familiar with? .NET. Right. C-sharp.net. Yeah. Again, overall theoretical overall cost of ownership is significantly lower in that case, right? Well, because I mean, even if it, yeah, even if it's sort of, I mean, yeah, man, I mean, it, I, I could see that making such a difference if they're just that's the name of something they've heard of before. Like, even just that makes a difference. Oh, C sharp, yeah, we know what that is, right? I mean, I, you know, in the earlier quarter radios, I recounted the stories of convincing IT managers that you know using an Apple device wasn't going to bomb their exchange network, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's certainly a, a, let's say, brand recognition quality Mm. to C-Sharp. Yeah. Um, And and, and now we're not going to talk about this today, too, but C-Sharp is actually a phenomenal language. Just going to let that one slide for now. Um, Proprietary software is not ethical. It's actually open source now. Then your description is is not accurate. Wow. What happens to you is not sufficiently important to justify the wrong you're doing. Yes, it is. I'm evil. What's wrong with that? Exactly. This is egregious. <laughs> All right, I'm all done. That was, that was our RMS update. All right, so continue so, on, sir. This is fascinating to me and yeah, actually so, quite illuminating. So quick recap, right? Cost, BYOB, which doesn't necessarily mean all those devices are going to be Android or, or iOS. They're probably going to be some combination of both. And um, familiarity to IT 
which is probably the most important thing on this list, right? So if you can't get through to the IT manager, or even worse, if there's just one IT guy, you can't make the sale. And I'm sure Chris would tell you the same thing. I, I agree 100%, yeah. Like if you, if you can't sell the guy in the technology you're using... Even if you do manage to make the sale, he's just going to create roadblocks. I open. definitely uh, – during my my career, I think it's really interesting as somebody who does the Linux Action Show too is I, I witnessed the uh, arc of I lost the deal because I wanted to use Linux and then I would have to sort of like learn to like sort of pivot on my feet and be like, oh, yeah, we could do it on Windows. And then like that arc finally concluded when I was leaving sort of the consulting gig as – you win by selling it on Linux. Yeah, that runs on Linux. Yep, it'll run. Yep, we can do that on Linux. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that'll be no problem. Like, so it, it was a very fascinating thing because for a long time, there was this this sort of visceral bad reaction, uh, especially in the area I was working at because it was at that time in the education sector and there was a lot of money coming right. in from sure, Microsoft. Sure, sure. So there was like an extra little bit of preference towards Microsoft. Um, and then as I kind of expanded out from there, I, 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 I witnessed sort of the, the general shift in perception from IT departments to more and more over time started asking for Linux. You know, can you do that with Samba? You know, those kinds of things. That was really fascinating to me to watch because then all of a sudden it became a market advantage to be able to say yes to that. Whereas in, when I started in my career, it was a market disadvantage. You know, it's funny. I actually recently lost a sale uh, because I wouldn't do something in Swift. <laughs> Swift? Because I'm afraid to ship Swift to a customer because it's not a 1.0 language and, you know, the syntax can change. What, uh, how, how does that even – is that even a thing yet? Apple has managed to advertise Swift to non-developers to the point where super, like, you know, middle management, you know, I'm the – random finance official from this company who's been designated the project manager for their company is like, oh, but we, we need Swift. Someone who considers them like, I'm a I'm an iPhone enthusiast. Well, it, it's, it, it's funny. Apple has managed to somehow create this sense to non-technical folks that by your app being written in Swift, it will somehow be better. Wow, that Even is though an, Swift is not finalized as a language in terms of syntax or APIs or anything. You know what that is, right? That is that is the strength in currency of brand that Apple has. That's, it's, just, it's, it's horrifying. Like That's amazing. And it sort of just switches off the critical thinking area of people's brains. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we ended up not being able to close the sale because, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm saying, well, we could do it in Swift, but... You know, what if Apple changes the syntax or something crazy midstream of this project? Let me tell you about my friend C Sharp, and they said no thanks. Well, we were we were actually saying, let me tell you about my friend Objective C, which well, yeah. was fine for twenty years. My grandpa put it on this in Objective C, <laughs> kind of like. Um, but it's just funny how, for these middle management pseudo technical types. If they get a name in their head that they recognize as good, mm-hmm. regardless of if their argument is based on reality, you have to sell into it or you, or you just can't sell. So do you think that uh, C-Sharp has as much negative baggage associated with it as it has positive baggage? Or do you think it's all pretty much like when you come in there and say you're dropping things like the C-Sharp bomb and Zamarian – and iOS and Android in the same sentence. Are people like receptive to that, or are they like, uh, I uh, I know Xcode, I know about Objective C. What's the reaction? So outside of our little nerd bubble, uh, there's a couple important things. 
no one knows who Miguel de Acosta is or what Mono was. <laughs> right, right. So there's no baggage. Yeah. Everybody knows, and, and more importantly, every IT manager will sign off on C Sharp. Right. And, th- and that's what that's the Microsoft brand right there. Right, and it's it's unfortunate. Uh, but... I don't know. In business, I mean, Microsoft has a really strong brand for kind of steady as it goes for business. Well, I, I think it's unfortunate because in a lot of ways, the C Sharp systems or the .NET systems these companies are deploying or have previously deployed, yeah. Xamarin is a lot more modern than them. Right, mm. so there's still a little bit of a disconnect there. Okay, because you know you're running your 2003 uh, Microsoft Server application. Yeah, you're still behind the ball, right? You're yeah. still you're still not exactly where you want it to be. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was very apprehensive about even getting involved with Xamarin at all, just because you know a lot of our customers are historically the people you know striving to be on TechCrunch or the well-funded incubators right mm. and microsoft is a dirty word over there mm-hmm. so is c sharp yeah huge yeah huge batch but anyway you know it, it is not the be all and end all but it is another tool in the belt and i think chris i should tell you how it's being used yeah i'd be curious so the the shtick with Xamarin is not the Java write once run everywhere thing. First off, so get it out of your head. Um, and we're talking about vanilla Xamarin, right? We're not talking about Xamarin forms just yet. So it is not write once run everywhere. No, 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 no. Hmm. Um, you know, if you read my review, I talk a lot about the tooling. Long story short, the tooling on Mac uh, Xamarin Studio is phenomenal. Visual Studio integration is great, but extremely expensive. Right, and, and the uh, Xamarin Studio on Windows is a piece of shit. <laughs> and uh, it's very clear that they they assume that if you're on Windows, you can afford the Visual Studio license. All right, well, PT Dave's here. He's waiting for us to get to his email. He wrote in to give us an update on how the training's going. Uh, he says, teaching thus far. He says, hey, guys, I thought I'd check in and let you know how things are going with the teaching program and how it's been going so far. It's been amazing when it comes to my programming classes. I feel I've already achieved a larger understanding with my students than any of my previous teachers ever had done. I have been going with a model of handing uh, assignments out of improving a previous assignment to do something more effectively or in an alternative way. While it makes the assignment short and simple, I feel it lets them understand things in a better way. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. He even, he, even little brain teasers of how to find Prime uh, has worked really well. If for nothing else, doing this has helped me decide that I never want to do a computer. I never want to do computer repair again. So that's my new ultimate goal. Also, the comments on Zamarian were very greatly appreciated and helped me stop stop me from purchasing a license from them. PT Dave. So what do you think of this? So he's having them create something, and then for the next assignment, he's kind of having them iterate on it and improve it a little bit. That's a great idea, huh? Yeah, that, I mean, that's how software development works. I just want to just want to fast forward a little bit. So the uh, comments about Xamarin helped you out there, huh? By the way, it is Xamarin, not Zamarian. Xamarin, Zamarian, Zamarian, whatever. See, it's your blatant disrespect for the I... .NET community, <laughs> which, who hates the .NET community? There you go. Yeah, okay. I think it's wasted effort. All right, let's take a little moment and spend some time together again. Back here in the present, I want to tell you about something that's great, something you know about, something if you don't know about, you got to get all up in there. That's DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com right now. If you don't know about DigitalOcean, well, then you're missing out on kind of Mike's secret sauce for what he does for the back end of his clients. And lately, what Jupiter Broadcasting has been doing to expand our infrastructure on demand without any delay or any major cost. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You're going to get root access to 
this bad mamma jamma. You're going to be crazy impressed with the speed. You're never even going to have it. You're just going to be blown. Your mind's going to be, if you've never experienced anything like this, you're literally going to have your mind blown. It's so awesome. And the great thing is you can go try this out for free for a couple of months. I'm going to tell you how to do that in a second. But first, check out DigitalOcean. You can get started in less than a minute. Pricing starts at $5 a month. That's like, that's like, Less than a burger, right? It's $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, all SSDs, all SSDs throughout the whole DigitalOcean infrastructure, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And the interface that DigitalOcean has put on this, it's so, it's, it's so, it's so nice because it's just so simple. It's so straightforward. You can just get started. You can go create something. You're not going to spend a lot of time monkeying around. It's not esoteric like a lot of virtual machine interfaces are. If you've ever worked with any enterprise-grade virtual, virtualization stuff, all of the interfaces are always really crazy and esoteric. DigitalOcean realized what they had to do is start with incredible performance hardware. Then they utilized Linux and the KVM virtualizer because it's honestly one of the best in the business. And then they said there's that still that key piece. You know, we got the best bandwidth. We got the best software. We got the best rigs. We've got to have the best interface. That's the DigitalOcean control panel. Super powerful and intuitive. And power users can replicate the functionality on a larger scale with DigitalOcean's crazy great API. A crazy great API that the community is already taking tons of advantage of so you can jump in today and start using it or like a ton of great apps or you can build something for your own infrastructure around it not only that but DigitalOcean also has an incredible log and category of tutorials so you can deploy software on a DigitalOcean droplet in most cases using a one-click deployment method it's 2015 it's like yes finally if you ever got to a point though we're going to do something that's not one click and that can happen obviously uh, maybe you're going to set up like a Minecraft server or something like that They've got a ton of amazing tutorials for lots of distributions, all of the Red Hat-based ones, Ubuntu-based ones, but also now FreeBSD. And there's also CoreOS available up on DigitalOcean. CoreOS, I think, could be one of the biggest game changers in the enterprise server market uh, for the base OS, the way they do the containerization but keep the base system rolling so that way it's always being patched against things like Shellshock and Heartbleed, which is absolutely critical, but yet doesn't impact the isolated containerized application environments i mean it's obvious right it's also what ubuntu is doing now but you can get your hands on it and deploy it in production over DigitalOcean. and DigitalOcean works with the core os project in hand to make sure that they're part of the official update channel so that when core os the upstream distribution they have a direct channel to push those updates down to DigitalOcean, and the DigitalOcean disseminate them across the droplets it's they worked hand in hand with the project to make it happen it's incredible they also did a fantastic write-up about the technical differences and challenges of bringing FreeBSD to their platform. A very fascinating read. Head over to DigitalOcean. Now, here's the best part. I've saved it to the end. I don't want you to forget this part. Use our promo code CODERDIGITAL. Then you can try out the $5 rig for two months for free because they're going to give you a $10 credit. Go play with that performance. Go try out CoreOS. Go see how exhilarating it is to just update the packages on your system on a droplet up at DigitalOcean. I'm not even kidding. That alone is thrilling. Go try it out two months for free, code or digital, then go build yourself something awesome. Go deploy Ghost, GitLab. Go try anything, BitTorrent Sync, OwnCloud, Minecraft, Mumble. It's your own server. And we're going to tell you a lot more in, a very, in an upcoming Linux action show about how we are using DigitalOcean droplets to power the most high fidelity most performant remote video solution i've ever seen and it's totally all built on top of open source software powered by linux using DigitalOcean servers for the back-end infrastructure and i wouldn't go anywhere else digitalocean.com use the promo code coder digital when you check out and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the coder radio program 
Coder Digital, guys, thank you very much for supporting our sponsors, too. It keeps us on the air. Now, uh, as we move on, uh, we'll be back soon. You know what's going to be crazy, and I'm just going to say this right now, is I have no idea what's going to happen next week. So what, essentially what, what kind of happened is we were going to do a retrospective because we've had these topics we wanted to sort of replay, reanalyze, and uh, we, Rikai is going back to see family. He's at, Rikai is the editor of the Coder, all of the shows, and the Coder Radio Program is one of them. And I, I haven't edited since he's come on board. I just haven't done it. I used to edit all the shows. You know, I would host and edit. I would do the prep, host and edit. And then I realized that I'd rather put a gun in my mouth. So I said, okay, I should probably hand off the editing. That, that was a good signal that maybe I was getting um, overworked. And so uh, now that he's leaving for a week, I just like, I thought, well, I could A, have an anxiety attack. B, maybe we could make some best of episodes. So that way I would have a much lighter editing load. And so we'd already kind of been working on this. So as it happened to be, we were kind of ready to go and had done the groundwork for this retrospective episode. So when Mike got stuck in some work today and said he couldn't make it, I was like, well, I mean, we've got this. But here's the flip side. That means next week when we have a Coda Radio, it's all on me. I got to edit that stuff. I, I, I don't even know if I remember what the, what the Final Cut icon looks like, let alone how I upload it and put it on the CDN. So who knows? 142. Well, at least it's 42. That, that gives me... That gives me hope. So why don't we enjoy the remainder of this episode and uh, while we at least have this time together. So looking for folks in New Jersey who uh, love Unix. Have to be in New Jersey? They can't work remote? Okay. Have to be in New Jersey. We did remote. didn't work out. Okay. And this is the conversation I want to have. Less for me to plug hiring, but plug, plug, plug. Go follow us on Facebook. More about – it's funny because now that I'm on the other side for a good portion of the time – Remote really doesn't work when it doesn't work. And I know that's a stupid platitude, but wow. Well, we came down pretty hard on Yahoo's decision when Marissa Meyer uh, yeah. pulled the plug on remote working. I mean, we were pretty critical. It's it's just amazing how, how much you lose by, by being remote. Um, even little things, like... I mean, we still have remote people. Um, the, the lovely Zane Swafford, and you know he's just fine. But we've had other folks that it just doesn't work out. Hmm. And I think it's funny, given all you know, all the tools we have. Uh, we used to use HipChat. Now we're using a program called Slack for remote communications. You know, big GitHub users. Chris, my GitHub cost is now 100 bucks a month. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Enjoy, GitHub. That escalated quickly. Yes. Um, but still, not having that right there water cooler interaction has a cost and i don't know am i becoming an old curmudgeon um no i agree with you actually i don't i don't think you're curmudgeon. A, a curmudgeon at all i think uh and unfortunately i've noticed this on the opposite end because i've been the remote guy a lot working right. with clients and um you know for clients that were important i would have to set up on-site meetings and if i was really important it'd be weekly and if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, weekly, it would be as frequently as schedule would allow. And the clients that I didn't really like super get too worried if I lost, I wouldn't bother um, towards the end. And that to me was the biggest indicator that yeah, being on site really matters. Um, it <clears throat> hi there. It, it it teaches people how to interpret the way you write. That they can hear your voice better in an email when they when they even you know like because when you're on a phone, you're in phone mode. You know, but when you're with somebody, you learn their tones, you learn the way they speak. And so when you read something in an email, like sometimes if you don't work with that person day on and day out uh, in person, you can sometimes misinterpret the tone, which can then just sort of 
it seems like such a small thing, but it can breed um, dissatisfaction on both sides, distrust on both sides, uh, frustration on both sides. And that's just one that is just one element. Then there's the quick passing, hey, what about, maybe you yeah. could do, did you think about, hey, can we, those kinds of things that just don't come up when a person isn't walking past you, right? Yes. Um, I've noticed this just working with Rikai, like, when I'm there, you know, there's a lot of things we'll discuss that come up. And when I'm working remote, it's like it's really kind of minimal. Like, okay, we'll just t- we'll just check in on certain specific things that we both are aware that we need to check in on to keep the ball rolling. But you know, there's not so much of a collaboration process. And it, it, for some job descriptions, that's fine. You know, what you're working on is you 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 get your chunk, you work on that for a while, and what you need to do is produce results. But for other types of job roles. It needs to be a little bit more of a back and forth, and it doesn't matter if you leave a hangout running 24-7 or a Skype call or whatever it is. It is not the same thing. I hate to say it, but it's been my experience as well, and uh, it, it, the reason why I hate to say it is because I'd all love to believe that one day we could all be sitting in our houses hooked up to fiber internet with Oculus Rifts on our head and go to work and never have to leave the house. That's my well, future. So I, I think there's still a place for remote work. I just think we have to have the assumption that there's an inherent value loss in being remote. You know, unless you, if you're part of a team, unless you're black boxing some functionality or some, you know, some entire project. Um, now I could be wrong. I could be a curmudgeon, but it, it's funny because it, it just doesn't seem to, it just doesn't seem to work. Uh, okay. So let's explore this. Let's zoom in on this a little bit. If, if somebody, so you say it works for some job types. Um, do do you think, uh, in some cases then that that should be factored into the pay? Like, uh, if, if you working remote comes with a, I don't even know how you could quantify it, but let's say a 30% productivity cost or collaboration cost or whatever you wanted to title it. Does that get factored into the wage they should be asking for or get paid? You know, I don't know. I mean, I know that's kind of what I suggested, but the way we've uh, ended up resolving this is just by not doing it anymore. Hmm. We have one. We have Zane, and you know, Zane's wonderful, so he's the exception. Um, beyond that, it's you know, I think we tried it with five people, and it worked out with one. My experience has been like it, uh, like for me, um, like I've had a lot of people offer to help out, but uh, <laughs> the thing is, is like the work is the type of work we do is involves these massive files, and it's it's part art and part editing. Like there's there is sort of like a, a feel to how things should be edited, and the, it's very very hard to have somebody remote. I mean that's that's why we flew Rikai literally across the united states that is he's he came from the he came from maine and now he's moved to washington so that way he could be our editor because it it really is something where we've experimented with remote editing we've experimented with a lot of remote stuff there's some things like um we have producers for the linux action show and linux unplugged and they're they're remote uh because they're doing 
uh, guest lineup. They're doing show preparation. They're doing uh, the organization of, of, you know, a lot of the operational details of producing those two shows. And they don't have to be on site. Um, and our, sometimes our collaboration does suffer, especially when I'm really busy and I don't have time to jump in the mumble room and have a, have a conversation yeah. for an hour. Um, but we try to stay in touch over IRC. What, what tools have you guys used to collaborate with your remote users? Have you guys tried like a persistent chat room and things like that? Yeah, so we have one. We used to use uh, Atlassian's hip chat. Now we're using one called Slack. Um, that's a pretty – that's been a pretty good solution. Yeah, I, I just I, – we just use IRC. I mean, just good old classic IRC, and it it seems to work pretty well because we uh, the most of us, the bulk of us, not all of us, but the bulk of us have always persistent IRC connections. So somebody can drop a message in in that IRC room, um, in, you know, in in a, in a specific production room, and I could come back four hours, five hours later, and I'll see it. You know, I'm not necessarily there all the time. But it, then you do need more um, immediate messaging, right? So then we're using Viber for the more immediate stuff. Right. Uh, which is great because, like, when we're going to go, we're going to go on location to Linux Fest Northwest, and you know, their IRC isn't going to be the best option because we're going to be moving around. It's going to be Viber, so uh, it depends on the tools. So tools help, you know, and things like Basecamp help too. Have you ever tried that? We had, yeah, we actually got rid of it. So we've gone pretty all in on GitHub. Uh, that has not. So GitHub is very unfriendly to our type of business in terms of the cost scheme. Yeah. We tend to have a lot of small repos rather than uh, rather than a lot of. I don't even know what you would say. You know, one big product repo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I follow you. So it's a little weird. Um, you know, certainly at this point we're paying. I think we're paying a uh, hundred bucks a month just for GitHub. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. It's. It's tough to consider that reasonable. Um, yeah, I'm paying. I'm paying a pretty penny to Google Apps these days. Imagine how I feel. I'm not I, very happy I about that either. Imagine. Yeah, it's you know it's funny, but GitHub's giving us the the um, you know the bug tracking and all of that stuff in one place. Do I think we're going to be on GitHub forever? Probably not. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. 100 bucks. In fact, we probably wouldn't have tolerated it for this long if we weren't currently actively working on a long-term project or um, where are we going to go we're we going to go back to bitbucket maybe but the problem with bitbucket was the issue tracker was never up to snuff so are so, you considering uh rolling your own github server are you considering changing or are you just thinking you're going to bite it down and, and... i i don't want to roll my own i think that's incredibly dangerous <laughs> i just I think what would end up happening is we'd end up going with Bitbucket and then using an external issue tracker. Mm. Okay. And the problem is, is uh, anytime you make big changes like that, there's a loss in productivity. And when you have, re- and in coordinating those types of, this is another example where remote workers can be difficult because coordinating sort of big platform changes like that with your remote workers, like eventually, you know, if you're a busy, if you're a small operation, something falls through the cracks, somebody forgets to tell somebody something, and the remote worker gets a surprise one morning or something like that when they need to look something up or do something. And, you know, that causes um, friction as well. And it's very challenging. I feel like these are challenges. And I know maybe for your situation, for, for the particular job, it's not applicable. But for some jobs, these challenges are worth fighting through because 
There are so many talented people all over the world right. that the internet connects us to that it's a shame not to be able to take advantage of people who want to contribute, you know? I would say that's fair. Um, the other thing I would add, though, is in, in our case, when you're a very, very small company, there's also a value in having people around just for, you know, having people around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for Yahoo or Microsoft, it's a little different, right? Because there's still going to be 5,000 people in, in Redmond. I mean, yeah. In fact, that's a gross underestimate. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about uh, speaking of crazy names. Let's talk about Flappy Bird. Just uh, this whole thing kind of felt like it's just blown up since our last show. Like yeah. out of nowhere, Flappy Bird becomes a thing, and it sounds like the guy might have goosed his ratings early on, and then that kicked off like this whole discovery, and then it just built on top of that. Yeah. So there's some some suggestion that he paid one of these services to yeah. boost his rating, which like late I've last never, year, which I've never done, but is extremely common. Yeah. And then that kind of oh. broke him into like a threshold of a certain amount of day, which then made him show up on some charts, and then it just kind of yeah. snowballed from there. Uh, and people probably are familiar with Flappy Bird at this point. It's like this impossible to beat game. I haven't played it, to be honest with you. I haven't either, because it looks just like it looks like a bad time. <laughs> yeah, it, lo- it looks really crappy to me. Yeah, it looks like I'm gonna really hate myself if I if to I. To me, this entire story is less about the game and more about wow. If you make the top of the charts, you can have a pretty crappy thing and do well. Well, let me ask you this: So, uh, do you think uh, do you think this is going to kick off a whole new generation of tap type games that just you know are total crap games that people are well, going to charge? I th- I th- yeah, I think him pulling it. I mean, I'm sure there is someone right now trying to find a dev to clone it. Well, in the Play Store, there's tons of clones, tons yeah. and tons and tons of clones in the Play Store. Um, yeah, because the problem is. You know this game isn't doesn't look terribly hard to develop, right? I mean, you could do no. He said he did it in a day. He said he did it in a day. So my question, though, to you is, what do you think about this whole he's pulled it thing because of the response? Is this a marketing gimmick? So he's pulled it out of the app stores now. He took it. He took it down from iOS and Android, and uh, said he just couldn't take all of the hate, even though the game was generating fifty thousand a day in ad revenue. Yeah, I would take the hate. Um, Fifty thousand a day in ad revenue. You believe that? Fifty thousand? What? That's according to a report on the Verge, which is blowing my mind right now. For a crappy game, it took him a day. A crappy game, it took him a day, dude. That's a lot of money. I, I forty-seven thousand reviews in the App Store. Been downloaded um, fifty million times. I. It's 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 a weird situation. The other story here that I think is interesting is, um, you know how there's been this meta discussion about uh, games that prompt you to rate them, and it's really annoying and interrupts you? Yeah, did you see what EA did, which is amazing? No. So on their new Dungeon Keeper game, they put up the rating dialogue. How would you rate this game? One to four stars, five stars. If you tap one to four, it just brings you to like nothing, like a little in-app feedback thing. If you tap five, it pushes you back to the app store. Funny. Well, so what this guy did, and I think this is part of his success, is on the start screen, you've got start, score, and rate. So he's not he's not um, obnoxious about the rating. It's just a little button on, on the first screen. And I think it might even suggest, like, some crazy stuff that you put in there. I don't know. Like, like some, you know, this game is horrible. I hate it so much. Five stars. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm just fascinated by something that... You know, even if it was manipulated a little bit at, be- at the beginning, like it, it catches fire like this, the guy makes a ton of money. And then to see somebody pull it, this whole thing is really 
fascinating to watch, and it's only really possible with this app store economy that we have now, this app store marketplace where something can just blow up like this all over the world, and we can all link to it, and we all download it, and then it can uh, it can just be pulled immediately. So, like, if you didn't get Flappy Bird, you're not getting Flappy Bird, and there's nothing you could do about it because these new yeah, app stores, I, it's just it's gone. I have a feeling that he pulled it. I mean, I, I kind of feel bad for the guy, to be honest. Uh, I think it's a marketing ploy. I don't. I, I I could see a lot of people being super nasty. Yeah, yeah. No, I've especially seen some of the tweets. It, yeah, especially since it came out that he gamed the system in the beginning, which is something that all large companies in the app space do certainly do. Yeah. Um, but the problem is, large companies. You know, even if you work for them, well, someone in marketing did that. It's not my fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a personal dude. It's you know. Eh. Having said that, I don't know. I mean. To me, the story here is that it's a non-story, right? It just proves that gaming the app store still works as long as your app is free. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, well, and that's what I was—that's kind of what I wanted to get the bottom of. Is, is now neither one of us have played, so maybe we're not in a good position to talk about this. But it seems like at a certain point you don't reach that volume. I mean, maybe that initial goosing, but then it seems to have legitimately had an actual viral spreading. Like people so the must. Issue, yeah, the issue has always been once you hit one of the uh, top charts. You're golden no matter what. That's why getting featured by Apple is always so something that is really helpful to put you on that front page. Yeah, I guess that's. I guess that you think that's all it took is just you got there and then one thing led to another. But would people really be sharing and rating as much? I mean, you saw forty-seven thousand reviews or something like that. I mean, would they be compelled to give it that many re- ratings and reviews if they didn't enjoy it in some way? I'm not suggesting that nobody enjoyed it. I'm suggesting that if he didn't goose it, he wouldn't have done well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, 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 you're, you, yeah, I see what you're saying there. You're right. I mean, it, it's, you know, a lot of people try to say apps are bad, apps are good. To be honest, most apps are bad in some ways and good in others because <laughs> they have limited budgets, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of apps that are super highly designed, for instance, are a lot slower than they ought to be because that design takes resources. Mm-hmm. A lot of apps that look like dog shit tend to run really fast and really efficiently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I think the biggest thing to take away from this is not surprising. People are still dicks on the internet. So if you do anything publicly, you're going to get nasty feedback. And um, still proves that Apple's, you know, Apple made an attempt to stop this kind of gaming and it didn't work. Hey, couldn't they have done more? In, in both the paper case and in this, like, seems like... So Apple probably shouldn't do more in the paper case, right? I don't know. I mean, couldn't wouldn't all wouldn't the fix just be you, you the first come first serve? You get in there, you register your name, and once you register that name, nobody else can register the same name. So you can do an app where on your iPhone it shows up as let's say we call the app Dog is what it looks like on your iPhone, but I could actually call that for the app store Dog by fingertip tech. Okay. So what happens is the display name and the actual name. Oh, oh so th- there is actually a rule right. like that. I see, and but you can just get around. You it. can just change it. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, uh, all right, very good. Yeah, so uh, uh, Peacemaker in the chat room says, that game was totally viral. My Facebook feed was filled with screenshots. You know, I did see a lot of screenshots on Google+, Plus too. A lot of people talking about it. That's actually how I heard about it first was on Google+. And then- yeah, I mean, this, this guy, you know, he certainly deserves the success more than Candy Crush does, right? I mean, all right, Mr. Dominic, why don't we shift gears and talk about Build? Uh, it just wrapped up last week, a Build 2014 Microsoft made some big announcements. They said they're open sourcing their .NET compiler and uh, their their whole platform, uh, yes, Roslyn, yes. right? This is huge, right? 
I, this, I don't even know what this means. Um, you know, I put on Twitter last night that I thought it was a big deal. Some folks have questioned, well, why does it matter? Uh, I think this is huge, right? I mean, one of the biggest complaints out of Xamarin has been since Microsoft only selectively open-sourced uh, .NET before, right, right. they had to kind of guess. Uh, I mean, at the minimum, this is going to be huge for Xamarin developers. At well, the minimum. Um, I think this is I think this is a really big deal. Now, I think most right. of it's under an Apache license. Um, yeah, and, it's very permissive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I and I think uh, a lot of people are saying this is a response in you know trying to stay relevant while they still can. Uh, I I I I really like Mary jo, Mary uh, Joe Foley's take on this. Uh, Mary J Joe Foley uh, wrote. Uh, let's see, did I? Yeah, over on ZDNet. She wrote a piece um, after she talked with some guys behind the scenes, and she's always really good at kind of getting the root of the Microsoft story. She's she's um, one of my favorite Microsoft uh, followers. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things, Mike, that uh, has been talked a lot about with uh, some of these most recent announcements, and I'm including like Office for the iPad and now the open sourcing of a lot of the .NET platform, um, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's Satya Nadella. In fact, uh, over over the weekend, I wrote a piece from Business Week that said, in five days, Satya Nadella has turned Microsoft around and transformed the company. And that was the headline. And like implying that like he, he got it. Balmer stepped out and Satya sat down and went, know what I'm going to do? Office for the iPad. Know what else I'm going to do? Open source.net. And like just snapped yeah. his fingers. Like, come on. I, I, Balmer gets a bad rap, right? Balmer... It's silly to think. It, now, it's it's possible that they held the iPad versions of Office and they held open sourcing this, A, for build, and B, to give the new CEO something to show because for the you know for the media, that's a great narrative, right? It's already Guys, building, yeah. Yeah, and it helps them it's, build the story. It, of you know, Mike, if, if that is true, it would be one of the most brilliant maneuvers we have seen out of Microsoft in the last five years. It's pretty obvious it is, right? Those iPad apps have to take a very long time to develop, I can tell you as an iOS developer. The quality and the, the feature richness, that certainly wasn't done in five days. No, no, of course not. In fact, so uh, Mary Jo was talking to Somer, Soma Smozengir. Oh, boy, that's awful. But he's the corporate vice president of Microsoft Developer Division, so he's the guy that would know. He told Mary Jo at Build last week that they have been working around open sourcing more of .NET for the last three years, they've been working on this. In fact, the Zamarian guys have been flying out there, right. partnering with Microsoft, and they were a key advisor in all of this. Uh, now, which is interesting because some inside Microsoft were initially quite leery of Zamarian's goal to help the .NET developers write apps that worked on Android and iOS sure. because they felt like those platforms were competing with Windows. But over time, you know, more and more people inside Microsoft saw Zamarian more as friend than foe, and they started listening to these guys. And so they started saying, okay, well, if we're going to open source these, how do we need to do it? How do we engage with the community? And according to what Mary Jo got, this has been three years in the work, and Zamarian in the last few uh, months has been really coming in and kind of closing up the deal, which might be why we've seen a lot of these acquisition rumors floating around. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't know what to, to think. I mean, it's, the legal implications of them opening the source of this took more than, you know, two months, right? For sure. The idea that this is all Satya coming in and being like, I'm changing everything. Superman! <laughs> yeah, it's just not true, right? No. 
I mean, we're not going to see what his policies are for at least another. This is the litmus test for actual journalists versus the armchair journalists. Like when you see him writing these, these Saches change the company in five days headlines, add that one to your armchair journalist list. You know what? He's probably changed. He's probably changed uh, his office. Mm -hmm. I'm sure quite a bit. And he's probably maybe changed a few cultural things. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the recent Azure price adjustments weren't, you know, coming from his his office. Well, but he was also the head of Azure. Exactly. So certainly, uh, you know, and maybe changing the name from Windows Azure to right, yeah. Microsoft Azure. I could see that too. But even that, because again, they've had so many problems with names. Yeah, yeah. There had to be some sort of legal review. Right, yeah, um, yeah. I don't... Well, you know, the chat room thinks this is Microsoft taking on Java. Uh, you know, the chat room again. says that with them open sourcing uh, C-sharp, it's a full-on shot at Java, and some people in the chat room are speculating that this is going to eventually put it. This is going to leave Java in the dust. Well, so that's interesting. I mean, I'm a I'm a fairly notorious Java fan, um, and I would say that there are a number of things in C sharp that are frankly better. Um, the the idea that someone else would take C sharp other than Xamarin and do an implementation that could compete with Java is I'm trying to think of who would want to do it. Unless Xamarin decided to get into the whole full stack and offer like a web services and mm. ASP.NET equivalent, mm. which is also open source, so I guess they could at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, but the mono runtime has never been great. Yeah, I, I think this is a pretty big deal, and it's part of an overall. Uh, I think what they're trying to do is, I think. Microsoft is has actually fully come to terms with all right, we de-emphasize the individual platforms, we emphasize the infrastructure, the back end services, and the and .NET plays into that. You know, they created the .NET Foundation as part of all of this to foster open development right. and collaboration right. with the community. That seems like a really big deal. This is a serious commitment on their part. You right. know, it's maybe not my favorite license in the world, but it's 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 a real license that people can use. It's not some made up thing. So, what, what's your? It's interesting because I released my open source under Apache two. What's your issue with Apache two? I I I probably you know I'm not a big licenses person to begin with. Here I usually fall into the camp of stuff. Either is usually BSD licensed, which is close to Apache, or yeah, GPL. Yeah, or GPL, and it just depends on what it is and what license is best okay. for it. So I and you I know, think for, that makes sense. I mean, if you look at it, and a, you know, from my perspective, I'm usually open sourcing little toolkits, yeah, little utility kits that I've used in uh, that I use in sometimes Code Journal or other internal projects. Uh, or stuff I just do on the weekends to use in client projects later. You know, I've watched GPL. So I had a I had an old friend who had a really great product for schools that was GPL. He had somebody come along and take it up. And they did some really cool work with it and really impre- impressed upon it. But, you know, they, they, were, they built 20% of their solution on top of his whole stack. And uh, they kind of put him out of business. But... Using because of the GPL, he was able to get that code back, make his project and product better, and you know he was able to sort of have a rebound, and also then built out his own new niche. He sort of pivoted and created a new niche using some of their improvements. And I watched him go on this yo-yo cycle of like, oh man, I'm devastated. They just took my own code and just put me out of business. Oh wait, I'm benefiting from them modifying my code. Now I have a new market opportunity, and he sort of came back like it was like a comeback scenario. And I thought, wow, you know, it is. 
it, it sort of saved him that he got that code back when he put it out there like that. And so I can see, you know, there's there's good uses for all different types of licenses. And I think that the fact that it's not some sort of Microsoft shared code license. Yeah, I mean, that would be a non-starter. Right. For me. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the deal breaker. And it's not that it's a serious commitment. And that's what I get from it. I mean, OK, so Apple announced Swift. And this is quickly when Mike's mood turned pretty sour. Uh, and um, the audience seemed to respond extremely positive in the keynote. Uh, I, I would say there, this was the point in the keynote that got the biggest applause. And I don't think they really said Objective-C is dead. In fact, they said Swift and Objective-C can live together, essentially. So where do you want to start with this, Mike? So there are a lot of things I don't like about this. Um, oh, God. I don't even know where to go with it first. Well, so you were con- not, all right. So they're not saying Objective C is dead, right? Right. No one said Carbon was dead either when they announced Coco. This is kind of the pattern they like to go with, right? So certainly Objective C isn't dead, but the, its days are definitely numbered. Um, and additionally, Swift is definitely designed to be a more developer-friendly language, which is awesome if you're thinking of getting into iOS. Not so great if you've already been there for a while, right? Yeah, I, you're worried because it lowers the uh, the bar for entry, so somebody can just sort of be in high school and make an app. I mean, isn't that the case now? They talked about developers there that were as young as 13 years of age. I think this uh, barrier to entry is already really low. It's low, but see, the, the current Objective-C toolkit doesn't give you a lot of the things that um, a lot of developers have gotten used to on other platforms. So maybe, you know, it, I understand it's kind of a curmudgeon argument to be making, but... One of the nice things about being on the Objective-C side of life is that it's just so annoying to work with that a lot of developers don't want to. Um, and the market is still pretty thin. The Swift stuff, I think, is going to be super easy for anybody to pick up. Yeah. I think that's kind of the point. Um, and, I, and I guess you could, you could see a dilution of the market. I, I would suspect for a little while Swift will be so new that you, there just isn't going to be a one-to-one replacement. Uh, I mean, I could be wrong, but I would, I would expect it'll, you'll find a lot of folks, well, yeah, I tried Swift, but I ended up just using it to sort of glue these two pieces together, and then I put a little Objective-C in there to finish it up. Or, you know, right. like, yeah. I, I don't think this means Objective-C is gone. I don't think this means Objective-C well, is dead I even think- for years. I think what you're going to see is a lot of new developers go directly to Swift um, within the next year or two, and a lot of older developers stick with Objective-C, but eventually Swift will continue to become more common, right? I do believe, with I, I, I mean, I think Objective-C is on a death watch now. I think we should start the clock. We could even start a pool and take and take bets when, when they're going to pull the plug on Objective-C, when it's going to come up out of the ground in a uh, tombstone, like iOS 9 did. Or OS 9, I mean. <sighs> Yes, I like Shane Kufel in the chat. My tooling got better. Wah. It's a Shane, I want my tooling to be crappy. I was also upset when they released Arc. So. That is kind of your argument, though. No, it is, that is exactly my argument. I, w- I was angry when they released uh, Automatic Reference Counting, too, because it it was a simple supply and demand calculation, right? But on the flip side, they have – I mean, they say that their language will help a lot of common coding mistakes that lead to errors. Uh, that could be a really beneficial thing. Um, it. Right. Again, though, how many projects do do I get that other people have blown up because they make memory mistakes in Objective-C? So it's kind of a double-edged thing. But let me put it to you this way. Your Swift is beneficial to you in a converse relationship with how experienced you are with Objective-C, right? Mm-hmm. 
especially with old Objective-C. So the further back you went, the more of an advantage all those hurdles Objective-C put on developers were to you. Because once you learn it, you learn it. And I just think because Swift is theoretically going to be simpler to use, uh, because and they demonstrate it on stage, we'll have to wait and see real real world results, but they demonstrated a massive speed improvement. Yes. Uh, it will eventually, you know, just be in pure adoption rate, just smash Objective-C. Yeah, and uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but I still think it takes more than just how hard it is to use a language to make a good app and make a good developer and make revenue. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I, I'm thinking less for developing first-party software and more for client services, low-end customer projects, right? Low-end yeah. client. Come in and fix here. this. This guy botched this all up, and now this new language might prevent some of those things that uh, have well, them calling you in the first place. Right. I mean, when when Arc became mainstream, we saw a lot less of those. My app randomly crashes, and I fired the other dev team because most of those random crashes were memory management issues. So there's. You know, there's an effect. Now, having said that, Swift may allow, um, you know, Swift may allow some new opportunities, but they haven't shown me anything new with Swift. They just showed me this is stuff you could have done in Objective C, yeah. but it's so much easier in Swift, and that that's a little scary for me. All right, well, let me uh, let me switch gears to Johnny. He wrote in and uh, he titled his email "Software Factory," so I'm already curious. Uh, he says, "Hello, thanks to your shows, especially last. My wife and I watched." Uh, uh, switched to Linux a few years ago, Mint on Dell Inspirons and Dell XPSs. So far, a great experience, and it connected me to my old times when I used to be a geek. I think you might still be. All right, at present, I'm a project manager at one of the largest IT companies in South America. Yes, I've moved into the dark side, and I would like to hear from you guys any comments on the software factory paradigm. Is it viable, or is it just a dream slash nightmare? Uh, salutations from Chile. Sorry for my English, Johnny. So... I, you know, it's funny he said this because I said that Jupiter Broadcasting was a podcast factory in a sense, or you know, we have a we have a production pipeline, um, and a, and you know, things have to happen at a certain time or else the next product gets sort of jammed up. I suppose this is very true for software too, and I think of, I think of a, a place like Angry Birds, like Rovio or uh, Zynga, where they have like these in-app purchase games where they have to constantly be producing new levels and n- new stuff for people to buy in-game, or or like a lot of these. Uh, sandbox games that are on uh, tablets now. Um, Simpsons Tapped Out is one of them. There's other ones out there. They're, they're just constantly require that the developers must be just n- continuously churning out code, almost like a factory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the, there is also this idea of a software factory in that you would get the software development process to be so efficient that it could literally be like a factory line, right? Like an assembly line. Um, unless I'm assuming he's not talking about the factory pattern, which is a development pattern that's almost certainly not what he's talking about. I, I, I don't think that's a realistic goal, and I know I'm being a negative Nancy today. <laughs> uh, and the reason I'll say that is at least in projects I usually work on, it, you know, it, it worked for Ford Motor Company because every car they build is exactly the same, right? right? They have a set specification, and they're building it. Um, in, in fact... You know, we're at fingertip. We're becoming more agile, which makes me want to vomit in my mouth. But we're doing it because it's a necessary evil, and it's certainly less of a control freaks uh, dev model, and it's a little more you know freewheeling. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, most time you get a project, the person either doesn't know what they want or actually doesn't want what they told you they want, and this idea that you're going to somehow 
get such a good process that's going to make it like a like a mechanical factory is it's it's to me a dream right you'd, you'd really a, literally have to be almost producing the same thing over and over again like uh you know mmos are another good example where they just take kind of the same stuff and they ch- switch stuff around switch the story around change out the assets you know, so there are probably some gigs where i you could get close right but even then yeah. technologies improve uh, you know, the ability, capability of computers improve. And so it, it seems almost like by the time you've got a factory line set up, some kind of change, either in the requirement of the software or yeah. the technology itself would change. So it does seem like I'm a dream that's almost impossible. So there's, I mean, certainly some of the factory guys, and I'm not an expert on this. I would love to hear from if anybody out there yeah. sort of works in a software factory. That would be really interesting. I mean, the idea that there is you know, value to be gained and efficiency to be gained by learning on how what didn't work before, I think is just common sense. And I'm not sure that that needs to be its own ideology, right? Um, I, I mean, I would love to talk to someone who who has successfully implemented this to the point where it is truly like a physical assembly line, truly, truly that well. I get the feeling that it's kind of like agile where it's, it, you're not, it's not a Boolean, right? You're not agile or waterfall. You're somewhere in between. You're, it's like a spectrum, right? Don't go chasing waterfalls. Thank you, TLC. Yeah, okay, good, good. I'll stick to the rivers and the streams. <laughs> They're fools. And there you have it. That brings us to the end of this week's retrospective on the Coda Radio program. Now, assuming I managed to find the Final Cut icon, somehow figure out how to run the encoding scripts, and publish the file up on the CDN, well, then you'll have an episode. But your best chance... Join us live, because we're going to do that. That, I know how to do. Go over to jblive.tv. Nine, nope, don't listen to me. It's noon. Noon on a Monday. That's 3 p.m. Pacific. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Get it converted to your local time. And then you don't got to worry about it. Show up live, because I know you're going to get that next week. I don't know about the rest of that, but I know you're going to get that. So be here for that next week, and then hopefully on the download shortly after that. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Quarter Radio. Love to get your feedback over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact, and not forget that subreddit, coderadio.reddit.com. See you right back here next week. <laughs>